0: please to 1st Timothy chapter 4 1st Timothy 4 a couple of weeks ago we looked at um, a, a little close a little close look at what I call the Pauline philosophy of ministry 1st Timothy chapter 4 and we were reading in verses 6 through 10 which I'll pick up for context So denying the doctrines of demons and teaching the people in Ephesus and the church to reject false teachers is the context. Paul says in pointing out these things, the way to relate to marriage, the way to relate to food. You're not holy or set apart to God by not eating food. You're not a better person for not eating certain kinds of food. Not a biblical notion not something we're responsible for. It's a doctrine of demons, asceticism. And pointing out the, this, the truth about these false teachings in 1 Timothy 4.6, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you've been following, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On, on the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is of only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance, for it is for this we labor and strive because we fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. We zoomed in on this passage, both services last week, sequentially. Two weeks ago, we zoomed in on it and I'm surveying the life of Paul. We're at the end and, you know, first Timothy, Titus, then second Timothy, and we're done with the Christian life of Paul. Three years of walking through acts and Paul's letters, how they work on the timeline. And here at the end, we zoomed in because Paul tells you the blueprint for Christian ministry. He tells you, this is the way to think about what we're doing. And as you just read through that passage, some ideas may leap out to you. But when you zoom in on it a little bit, you see, okay, Paul is telling him the way, the goal, we want to be good servants. What we're after is that the Lord's pleased with us. The way you do it is you focus on the teaching of God's word. Okay. And, and you connect it to their lives. For example, in this situation, you've got the false teaching in Ephesus and, and Timothy's being equipped to to fix that to say no to this false teaching. It's an application in context. And so there's a model that we're seeing developed. That's the apostolic era. Timothy is a special case. He's not just a pastor. We would say he's more than a pastor. He's an apostolic emissary coming with the word of the apostle Paul and the authority of him in his place. Nobody has that today because the apostles have died and they're not making emissaries anymore. But, but the analogy is he's functioning as a pastor, and this is the way to think of doing the local church. You know, there are a lot of ways to teach, a lot of teaching methods that you might use. We think of teaching as lecture, which interestingly means t- reading in Latin, doesn't it? speech speaking. We think of it as that's, that's teaching, but there are lots of ways you can teach. You can tell stories. Jesus did in his parables. There's a purpose in the parables. People say you should tell more stories because Jesus told stories. Well, the parables, most of them are presented in a judgment context where the uninitiated don't get to know what he means. And the those that are walking with him and believing in him they do get to know what he means and it was a judgment on Israel that he spoke parables so when someone uses that to you know preach preach parables to the United States I'm like somewhat appropriate maybe I guess <laughs> but we have all kinds of ways and the bible shows us that if you spend a lot of time reading the later chapters of exodus for example it's not narrative much there. It's not a story. It's instructions. It's kind of a written blueprint. There's no diagrams, but word by word, line by line, blueprint, blueprint for the tabernacle. A lot of people that read through that and work through that will, will say, we need to build something so we can see what it looks like. And you get these models of the tabernacle, dioramas people will make trying to trying to do it to scale and with the colors that are described and, and show what you, you can understand from reading it because it's like a, it's like a written blueprint and everything in the tabernacle is significant. It's Christological talking about what's the, the one who's coming to save us, who, who has come. But I'm just saying the Bible has lots of ways. It demonstrates for us to teach. You can teach in poems and you can be taken on a little journey in Psalm 23 to think through, but it's always thinking, beloved, to think through what it would be like if I was just a little sheep and the Lord God was my shepherd. Think of yourself as just a little sheep and what do you need? Safety, protection, and especially nourishment. I need good water, I need good fat grass, I need someone that's with me even in the hard stuff. And it's a form of teaching. And in my opinion, in the hardest stuff you may face in life, Psalm 23 is sufficient to think through. I'm not going to be afraid of this valley, the shadow of death, because you're with me. There are lots of ways to teach, but here in first Timothy chapter four, Paul is lecturing. He is teaching and laying down exactly principle by principle, how to think about it. What's our goal to be pleasing to him? And that means we're a good servant of Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. How will we be good servants of Christ, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you've been following? What doctrine is it? It's what you are being trained in, but you have been following. There's a track record that's been developed. See, remember all those thoughts that Paul's bringing out. It's a rejection of the lies and speculations that are being spun in the world around you translated better here elderly womanish myths old wives tales is what we say just so stories things people say that are so that they can't really know but they sound pretty good a lot of speculation out there lots of uh, squinting our eyes and trying to see the the real thing and won't look at the Bible, but the Bible has the better answers. It's under this goal of being pleasing to God and serving Him in the body of Christ that we are laboring and striving because we have our hope completely fixed on God, the living God. Beloved, do you all know what hope is? Is everybody here? Do you know what hope is? He's coming down the stairs again. This is what we do when Pastor Dave's a little bit tired and I see you're more tired than I am. My voice is putting you to sleep, so I use my physical position to wake you up. It's the teaching method. It's also walking around, intensely biblical. Jesus walked around, talked to the disciples all the time. Now, anybody know what hope is? Biblically. Because unbiblically, I hope you know what biblical hope is. Get it? What is hope? Hope in the Bible is pretty close to what we think it means in English when we say, I hope so. Because in the Bible, hope is the good thing. Hope is the thing that you want to happen. It's what you want, desire, long for, yearn for. Hope involves those th- that, that thing that you really, really want. But what's the difference between worldly hope of what I yearn for and biblical hope of what I yearn? What's the difference? Does anybody know? Yeah. Yeah. So confidence, certainty, expectation. These are the thoughts in the world. Let me come over this way in the world. Hope is, I don't really know, but we can sure. We can always dream. In the army, I was taught. Uh, this is something that, that, that army officers will do. The 30 somethings dealing with the 20 somethings. Big brothers are always tough on little brothers. And uh, just as soon as they ask you, hey, did, did, uh, did the tank, did, did the track get, get uh, fixed correctly on the tank? You guys break track and replace the track. I'm sorry, they should have had it done two hours ago, but I was over uh, taking a, the, this other mission you gave me. So um, I hope I hope it's done. And then the, then the senior officer springs the bear trap on your face. Hope is not a method. <laughs> that's the, that's the adage they had in the, in the army. Hope is not a method, which is good. Cause you don't know, if you don't know, then you need to go find out. And that's right. You know, that's the one of the great statesmen of my lifetime said trust, but verify, you know, hope isn't a method in the worldly sense of hope, but it's a, it's a very important method in the church and the body of Christ. We don't mean, I don't know, but I hope so. We mean that God said it and I've believed what he said and I continue to believe what he said. And that continued belief in what he said becomes solid. It solidifies the concrete has been mixed and now it's hardened into hope. It's an expectation. It's a foundation for life. So it is my yearning, my longing, my desire. What do you want in life? We want to be happy. We want my life to matter. We want the kids to be okay. We want the things that are the big things in life that we're concerned about. Right? Well, we yearn for those things. And we can think about how I can act to make those things come about. But Paul says many times in many places, we really need to put our hope entirely in God. First Timothy four ten. it is for this that we labor and strive because we've fixed our hope on the living God. So even if the things that I'm really want to see happen, don't happen, it's going to be okay because my hope is only and only and only in the living God. And you know what happens in the living God? No disappointment. Because he's going to have his way and his way is better than my way. So a little encouragement in terms of Paul's philosophy of ministry. You can't do what Paul's describing unless your hope is fixed entirely on the Lord. But that's what we've had. And we had just a couple of little commands. Reject these worthless and elderly womanish myths in verse 7. Reject them. On the other hand, train yourself for the desired result of godliness. One other thing I want to bring out as we get started today is godliness. Godliness. I want you to understand what the Bible means by godliness. What is godliness? Well, it's the opposite of trafficking in speculative mythology and, or, or just those stories. It's the opposite of focusing on These things. Train yourself for the good worship. For good worship. What does this mean? What is Yusebiah good worship? Godliness. It is not, listen carefully, it is not simply being a moral person. Godliness is not certainly not picking your favorite rules and then saying, I keep all my rules and then changing that a little bit and saying I keep all God's rules. That's not godliness. Godliness is not a certain cast of, of a pessimistic spirit that some of you are blessed with like me. And you uh, get critical about lots of things and you superimpose what God thinks, what you think on what, what God must think about something. That's not godliness. Godliness is your orientation toward God for your life. It's hand in hand with biblical wisdom. Biblical wisdom throughout the Proverbs and the Bible is the skill. Wisdom is skill to live your life in Yusabiah, live your life before God, being pleasing to him. That's, that's wisdom. And that's why Ecclesiastes, you, are trying to live your life separate from God. It doesn't work. There's no, there's no joy in all the buildings you could build or all the money you could make or all the things you could have. There's no joy in that because you're living under the sun, S-U-N, and you live beyond the sun with the creator where the real riches are and they're eternal. Godliness is your spiritual life. It is draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. It is quench not the spirit. It's don't grieve the Holy Spirit. It is walk by means of the spirit. It is this Christian spiritual life that is our birthright that the apostle Paul develops and the apostle John develops, apostle Matthew develops. It is the walk of the believer's life pleasing to God. And this is what we're training toward. Bodily training is uh, for a little is beneficial, but good worship or godliness for all things is beneficial because it holds a promise of life, both for now and for that, which is coming faithful is the word and worthy of all acceptance for unto this. We labor also labor and are reviled or reproached. We are advancing under fire as believers in Jesus Christ, the way that Paul says it. I don't know why the new American standard translated for this. We labor and strive, but I think it's a mistranslation. We, we labor and are reviled. We are rejected. Uncomfortable. And so this digs into the, our tendency in American Christendom and our wealth and comfort, comfort and ease to say your goal isn't comfort. Your goal is to be pleasing to God. And Paul says that will be rejection, being reviled. How, you can't do this without your hope fixed on God. We fixed our hope upon the living God who is the savior of all men, especially those who believe. Now, Paul just gave you what we're calling the, the, the philosophy of ministry. Christian ministry is completely fixated on the intake and application of the word, learning what God has said and believing it, and then doing it. Learning what he said and believing it and then doing it. That's the philosophy of ministry. And what does it take to learn it? Whatever it takes to learn it. In terms of ministry practice, We have verses 11 through 16, which comes next. And Paul says, now do it. Prescribe and teach these things. Start counting commands with me. Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Show yourself an example of those who believe we're at four commands in two verses. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery or the elders, the eldership. Presbytery and Presbyterian theology means you have a bunch of elders in town that make a synod, that make a that make the elder of, of the area, and they develop, and that's their polity, but it's not a biblical thing. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that the progress, your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. I might have named this passage or this study the Ten Commandments of Christian Ministry. Because Paul issues ten imperatives. And I'm baffled by the theologian, not exegete, who will say, if you make Christian obedience a focus in your ministry, then you're violating God's grace, or you're out of line with the Bible or something. Making obedience focal (laughs) somehow removes our connection to God, despite the fact that we have command after command after command after command. I know none of you here are struggling with this, and I praise God for that. But if you are, maybe you you are, look, I don't understand how you can say commands and we obey them, but then it's all by grace. If you're confused about that, it's okay. A lot of people are. A lot of people I love and respect are confused about that. And I, I think the simple answer is walk by the spirit and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Be filled by the spirit. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Beloved, Everything God wants to do, wants you to do, including the 10 commands that Paul gives Timothy here in this passage, everything God wants you to do is possible only in God's power, only in the working of the spirit of God through you. And I don't just mean so that you understand that's part of it, but so that you're capable to do that's Philippians 2, 12, 13. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's all grace. The fact that you know what God wants, he gave you the map and said, follow the map. That's grace. I didn't make the map, God gave me the map. That's what this is. The fact that you now have energy to take a step forward and follow the map and you can understand where it takes you, that's God's grace. The fact that you even want to, Philippians two twelve and 13, is God's grace. You are a product and a work of God's grace and never forget it. But that doesn't remove at all. In fact, it insists that you obey what he said. It's the greatest privilege that we have. I want to do something a little different with you this morning. Bear with me as I open BibleGateway.com. I just read you the New American Standard, an able translation of this passage. Um, well I had it up on the other computer and I forgot I had to put it up on this computer. Okay, U version has it. Wycliffe Bible Translator translators make Bible translations for All kinds of uh, people groups, all kinds of uh, nations. And I'm going to turn in one of the Wycliffe Bible Translators uh, Bible versions to 1 Timothy 4 verse 10. And of course, I'm going to show you the Hawaiian Pigeon Bible. Anybody ever seen the Hawaiian Pigeon Bible? Make it big. Duplicate my screen real quick for you. Uh Uh-oh. That's not what we're after, is it? This is dangerous, what I'm doing up here. So I can make it get bigger, but I can't can't make it. Oh, there it went, okay, yeah, so we're alive now. There we go. There we go. This is the Hawaiian pigeon body. It's still not there. <laughs> You're like, you're there. You don't go. I want to duplicate. There we go. Okay. The good guy that worked for Jesus Christ. Uh, I just read you t- uh, 11 through 16 at Timothy. Go teach all this tough and tell the people. Fo do them. Wycliffe Bible translators. Hawaiian pigeon. I believe there are something like 200,000 people that speak this, or maybe more, and, and a lot of them don't have good English facility. They, they have this. No, let nobody give you attitude just because you mo young than dim, but make good fo de people that trust God for show dim how fo act. Can you hear it? how you talk, how you act, how you get love, and aloha fo de people. I love that word, peepo. It's all through the Hawaiian Pigeon Bible. <laughs> Till I come over to stick with reading, let's see, de Bible to God people. give de people de kind words from God, and teach them all dat. No forget to use de power God will give you, dat time the older leaders in the church when tell what God like do it with you and put day hands on top, top you for show you one leader too. try, do all those ting tings every time over and over. Yeah. Go all out for, do, for, do them to everybody you see Fo everybody see how you do them mo better. Watch out how you act and make sure you stay teaching, teach, right. Stick with the good teaching. Cause if you do that, you and the people that listen, you, you go and come out of that bad kind stuff. Is it cultural appropriation? Try to read this and understand it. No, this is the Hawaiian pigeon Bible translation by Wycliffe Bible translators. What made me think of this was Wycliffe. That's manageable. Wycliffe. Yes. This may be my favorite English translation lately. That's Genesis. We want 1 Timothy 4, 11. Joel, do I need to do something so that you can see it? You got it? Great. Okay. Command, 13, I think 20s or 80s. Command thou this thing and teach. No man despise thee, John Youth, the chod or yog. That's a yog. That letter is ya. You No one is to despise your youth. By the way, third person imperative. This is a closer translation in, in English than anything in modern English, because they're tra- he translates that no one is to despise your youth. He doesn't say, let no one despise you. So Timothy, you go around and lash people that call you, you know, a sweet little young pastor. You don't, he doesn't say, he said, no one is to despise your youth. Anyway, <laughs> by the way, all modern English, especially King James are based on Wycliffe. So, but be thou ensemble of faithful men in word, in language. In charity, in faith, again, in chastity. The while I come, come. The while I come. That's how they would have said. Until I come. Tag, tent to reading, readinga reading, to exhortation. My kids spell like this in homeschool. Sometimes I mean it, <laughs> um, or. Monastying I don't know what that word, that word is, and teaching. Nyla thou despise, or little charge, the grace of God that is in thee, that is yawn to thee, by prophetic, given, this is given, to thee, by prophecy, with putang to of hondus of prestis, or priesthood. So the 1300s, they're calling the the presbytery, the elders, the priests. And notice it says the putting on of Hondas. My Hondas. (laughs) Think thou this thingus, these thingus, and these uh, be thou, that thee profiting be shewed that showed or no one known to all a men. Talk tent to this self. I'm going to start telling my kids to talk tent. Take tent, mean being be intent on yourself, and doctrine: be busy in him softly so that thou doing these things shalt make thyself sa- safe, and him that hear in thee. There are so much, if you understand what these words I mean, they're foreign-sounding words, because it's, it's, it's before modern English, but uh, it's like the end of Middle English. Old English is German-ish. You don't, you don't understand Old English. And then Middle English is, you could, this is kind of like that. And then we think of Old English today as Shakespearean. That's modern English, Elizabethan English. But anyway, the the words, the way he's making translation decisions based on Greek tenses I, and, and just the way things are stated, I think is closer than a lot of our English today. But I think we understand what he's saying. And I just wanted to show you how. Pigeon and Wycliffe are similar, since Wycliffe Bible translators translated the pigeon. There we go. So back to what I've done in my translation, watching the forebears and how they did it. Joel, I have a screen thing up there. Is it good? Got it? Good. All right. In verse 11, Paul starts with commands. He gave Timothy the rationale for ministry that were pleasing to God, and this is his mission for us. Now he starts issuing command. Commands. So, 10 commands. Parangela, parangela, sorry, and didaska, didaska. Command these things. My Bible translates it um, prescribe. Wycliffe called it command, because the word parangelo means to make an announcement that is authoritative in what people are supposed to do. Is that a prescription or is that a command? I tend to think it's more like a command because I'm dumb and I need somebody to tell me what to do. I don't know what to do. What do I do now? I need God to give me some commands. Command these things. And didasco. It doesn't say preach. That would be under the word command, like the exhortation part. This is didasco. This is teach them. The verb teach is a transitive verb. You're like, Oh, I don't want to talk. Don't start on that grammar stuff. Pastor Dave transitive means that it takes a direct object and the action of the verb goes into the direct object, kick the ball. The ball is the object and it's a transitive verb. A lot of verbs in English aren't transitive, but teach is, and here the way it's used in Greek, it is teach what? These things that I'm telling you, the rejection of the false teaching, the embrace of the hope that we have in God, these things. Didasco can also take, at least in English, the way we do teaching in English, you can also take a different type of object. What I'm teaching is this material, right? But I'm also teaching you. Different, Different object. You're not the Bible, but I am teaching you. The Bible double direct object, teaching the people what the Bible says. It's an interesting thought. Sometimes pastors can get so wrapped up in the Bible that they forget that they're talking to people. Does this mean we need to change our focus on the Bible? No. It means that we need to do what is necessary so that the people are getting the content of the Bible. And it's a really important thought process. It involves communication strategies. We do many types of teaching, different types of events. And we're trying to help, to help you come to know God through what he said. One of the great methods of teaching is imperative command. God gives us these commands. Now I... Very rarely issue commands. But I constantly teach you God's commands. Now, if I'm teaching you but not God's word, that'd be bad. If I'm teaching God's word but it doesn't get to you, well, that'd be bad. What I need to do is teach you God's word. Command these things and teach them. When I say this is the Paul line or Paul's philosophy of ministry, That's really Jesus' philosophy of ministry. It's what Jesus taught. Just real quick, in John chapter 21, the Lord Jesus is closing down His ministry with the disciples after the resurrection. And you have the threefold question of the Apostle Peter. Do you love me, Peter? In John 21, verse 15, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to them, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said... Bosco, not tend, Bosco, feed my lambs. Feed my lambs. Horribly translated tend my lambs in the New American Standard. It's feed. Bosco. He said to him again, a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Poimino, my sheep, shepherd, my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because the Lord said to him, the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, Bosco, feed my sheep. Feed them, shepherd them, feed them. I think shepherding has a lot to do with feeding (laughs) the flock. So you go back to this passage where Paul is saying command and teach. I hope you can see that this is, this is Paul adopting the ministry philosophy of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we, there's a reason why my life experience of being taught the word all growing up, all my life being taught and taught and taught and taught. There's a reason why it resonates. When Lewis Berry Schaefer talked about C.I. Schofield... 25, 30 years after Schofield's death. This was his mentor, the, the man who had pastored him most effectively and discipled him. When, when, when the founder of Dallas Seminary spoke about C.I. Schofield, the writer of the, the, the Schofield Study Bible notes and many things, he wrote many things. When he talked about him, he said, you know, I had listened to Bible teaching my whole life. My father was a pastor, minister in Presbyterian church. And I I became a musician, went to Oberlin College, studied music, and I became a a traveling evangelist singer. So in an evangelistic meeting, think of an old Billy Graham meeting, you have the singer, the tenor guy who will sing and lead everybody in song or sing a solo. And then you have the preacher who gets everybody all, you know, coming down the aisle. And I think it was, I forget how long, seven years, I think, he traveled as the singer with a traveling evangelist. And we're talking in the early 20th century when Elmer Gantry was... uh, was making us rounds. We're talking about um, lots of train, like travel by train, by if you really want to get there fast, and uh, and tent meetings and all the revivalist uh, shtick to psychologically get people to to you know decide to give their life to Jesus or something. All the psychological techniques, and uh, he said. Uh, He rejected all that when he got with the Bible and wrote a book called true evangelism, motivated by his experiences from all these techniques. He said that the most important task in evangelism is, is prayer. You want to be an evangelizing person? You want to share Christ with people? Pray, spend time talking to God for for, on the, on behalf of these people. But, but the, the interesting thing he said when he first met Schofield, um, he heard him, he heard him preach, and there were no, there was no tapes back then. You weren't internetting or anything. You had to go hear the person, or you could read uh, some of their sermons that were printed in the newspaper. Often sermons would be printed in the local newspaper back then, or, uh, or a book or something. And so he heard Schofield teach the Bible in a Bible conference. After listening to people preach at him and evangelists, whoop and holler and all, and he heard Schofield give doctrinal instruction categorically. And he said it was a crisis moment in his life. He was completely transfixed and he had to get whatever he could out of that teaching because he was a soul born again in Christ, starving for truth, starving for the teaching of the word. He said it was a crisis moment in his life and he became an instant devotee of Bible teaching. I believe this is rare today as it was rare in Chaffer's day. I think Dallas Seminary was founded by Chaffer as Evangelical Theological College in 1924 to help everybody have this experience that he had when he was taught the word of God. This is why I'm a dispensationalist this emphasis on the teaching of God's word. This is why I teach the Bible. And I didn't know that when I started doing it, I had to go research and find out where we came from to know why, why am I this way? Why, when someone gives me three points and a poem, am I just not filled? I'm not, I, how to have a better, I, why? Well, it's because right here, It's hard. It's hard work, as we'll read. No one is to despise, kata That's to look, to think down or despise, to think little of your youth. No one is a third person imperative. That means that he's not commanding Timothy, don't let them, although there's an application here for Timothy about how he teaches them. But no one is supposed to do this. And so, how is Timothy going to manage that. Well, he's going to act as maturely as he should without trying to be somebody he's not. That's hard to do for a young man. We don't know how old Timothy is, but he's young enough that he needs to say this. Paul needs to say this to him. No one is to despise or to look down upon your youth. Now in Timothy's day, the way he would apply this is he would say, he would talk probably to, as Paul will say later, when you, when you rebuke an elder man, you speak to him as a father. You, gently, not publicly, not uh, harshly, but uh, I have a concern and can I talk to you? And you speak to him as a father, an elderly woman, as a mother with respect and honor and deference to their age. But this is the standard. Now for us, this is easy, right? As this is an easy application for us today. And it is that uh, this is not, see, being an elder in the church doesn't mean you're a young person in age. It means you're an old person in the word. Well, that can't, you can't both be true. I've been a Christian since I was three years old. I've never looked back. I started studying seriously at nine. I I gave up and said, okay, I'll do what you want. And I stopped fighting my parents and started doing what they wanted me to do because they knew where the goods were. So I became a serious Bible student at nine years old. Well, you can't be serious at nine. No, I'm nine years old serious, right? I'm nine years old serious. And I don't know what I'm doing. I'm 14 years old and I'm the chaplain's assistant in the Boy Scout troop. There's no chaplain. So guess who's running the Sunday services at campouts? That's right. 1980s campouts and Boy Scouts had a, had a chapel service and everybody came to it. Huh? And everybody was a boy. Anyway, And and what happened was I got in trouble. The Methodists came at me and said, one of them trying to help me, Dave, we're not trying to save anybody in the chapel. We're just trying to encourage them. (laughs) One of the kids that was my age, his parents started coming early on Sunday. Camp out ends on Sunday. His parents started coming early. They came two or three times to hear the chapel because I'm going to drop the gospel. I felt pressed, I felt, I felt, uh, righteously indignant that I wasn't going to save anybody in chapel. And I asked him, I said, well, what are we doing again? (laughs) And then when Dallas seminary, I tried to apply there. I didn't tell them any of that stuff that I've been doing all my life. I was taught not to talk about your accomplishments or your experiences and just talk about the Lord. And I was rejected at Dallas seminary at age. I want to say 24 or 25. I was going to chaplain up in the army and go switch to chaplain And they said, you need to spend more time in a local church, which was true, because I was a taper, I was studying Bible tapes, and I wasn't really connected to a local church. Um, And you need to grow spiritually. Your lack of spiritual growth and maturity is evident in your application, and you need to spend more time in the Word. And I thought, man, they must be really super-duper spiritual at Dallas Seminary. (laughs) I think it had more to do with who signed my application than my uh, spiritual growth, as I learned later. Nevertheless, the application of this passage to us is when God has someone that he's training up, they're not completely there yet, but the issue isn't their age. And and all of y'all have watched me grow up almost 14 years here. You know, 14 years later, I'm not the same thing I was when I first came. But um, I appreciate this church. You have always taken care to be this way with me. You've always said, what we're doing here is about what God is doing, and I've always tried to be accountable to you. But you, Gino, uh, Ginu, and uh, rare imperative for to become something or to be something. a couple of commands to be something. You become a type a Tupas or an example for those who believe. When I was in uh, training to be an, an officer in the army, I was in a really great ROTC program. And, um, They constantly emphasize leadership by example. You have to be the person that you're supposed to be so that you can live it in front of the people that you're to influence. And then when you issue some directive, it's coming from that context of a good example. And I, you know, and it's, it's hard, it's hard to manage and maintain that kind of perspective. And I could tell all kinds of self deprecating stories about how I fell short in that. I'm glad that my pastor, RB theme junior when I was 16 years old, I told him, I think I'm supposed to be a pastor teacher. I think that's my spiritual gift. He said, then I recommend that you be a combat arms officer in the army before you go to seminary. I said, well, I've always wanted to go to West Point. He said, West Point may be a closed door because it doesn't have Greek and Hebrew for your undergrad work. And I said, "But, but you could get that in seminary. And he said, well, yeah. Well, West Point actually opened the door to me being here because I met you long before i was the pastor here i used to visit when i was at west point it's only three hours away it's not a big drive to come to church (laughs) but my pastor said you should go be a combat arms officer that means armor or infantry or artillery and we would also now include aviation if you get in the attack side and uh, it was one of the best pieces of advice i ever got for me i've always been young I i was a young 16 year old i've always been an immature for my age kind of person Like, after all, I mean, right now, I'm I'm almost 45, and I feel like I'm 25, except physically. And um, (laughs) I needed to grow up a lot. And boy, I'm glad you didn't see all the times that I dropped the ball as a young officer or as a cadet. And I'm sorry that you've seen the times that I've done it as a pastor, but I have to say it's a lot better... after some life experience than it would have been, you know, trying to do it here in front of you. It's really easy for young men to to drop the ball. Anyway, this concept of leadership by example was not invented by the army or by corporate America or by leadership uh, gurus. It's the Bible. Become imitators imitators of me, even as I am an imitator of Christ. Imitate the Lord Jesus Christ as uh, God the Father and Jesus Christ in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. The idea is that you and I, again, are limited. I'm dumb. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just a little kid. Solomon, the wisest thing he ever did was say, I don't have any idea how to be king, so give me wisdom. You know, and God really honored him for that. We need need somebody to, to model after. And so Jesus Christ is our great exemplar. He's the great shepherd, and then he's designated under shepherds and they're supposed to we are supposed to be examples types for those who believe. And how will you be an example in what you say and how you live your life in love. The goal of our instruction is love in spirit, in faith, in purity. So on the one hand you have bright-eyed and bushy-tailed little precious little Timothy, young guy and all these people with more life experience looking at him, and they have two choices. They can see a young person that can't possibly know what he's doing, or they can look at what he's being and say, you are a man we should copy in how you speak and how you're living your life and how love is your answer every single time in spirit and faith and purity. This is how Timothy is supposed to behave. This is how I'm supposed to behave. And I think that makes me an example for you who believe. Until I come. Prosecco, pay close attention. Hold it close to you. That's what Prosecco means, to hold something close to yourself. Pay close attention to the reading. Anognosis. Anognosis is the word reading. To the... Exhortation or encouragement, this common word for for teaching or encouragement. Parakaleo, Paul's word for I urge, exhort, encourage, come alongside. In reading and the exhortation to the teaching. Pay close attention to the reading, the exhortation, the teaching. Now, prosecco, to hold something to yourself means that Timothy, you're going to make this your constant responsibility. And then don't do something. Do not neglect the gift within you. My Bible translates this word charisma as spiritual gift within you. And I think he's right. I think it's right to do that. The way Timothy received his spiritual gift here in the transitional phase described in the book of Acts was the laying on of hands. This is when... Uh, And how the Ephesians received the spirit when Paul first went to Ephesus, he laid hands on them in the second missionary journey and they received the Holy spirit. They didn't have the Holy spirit yet. These first Christians in Ephesus, they had the baptism of John and they didn't understand the Holy spirit. And so Paul baptized them into Christ, which is different from John's baptism. And then he laid hands on them and they received the Holy spirit. And that's a way God indicated the apostles are present. The apostles have completed their course and we receive the spirit just like Cornelius's family in Acts chapter 11. When we hear the apostolic word of Christ who died for our sins and rose from the dead and we believe that message, we receive the Holy Spirit. We are born again. We receive God's righteousness imputed to us. We receive all the things that God says. But Timothy, part of this second missionary journey ministry of Paul in Ephesus, he tells, says, do not neglect the gift within you. Now, Timothy wasn't in Ephesus, but I'm saying what happened in Ephesus in the second journey is what happened to Timothy. Don't neglect the gift within you, which was given to you through prophecy and the laying on of hands with the, of the eldership. Now, some have taken this verse to mean that the actual office that you're designated to have makes you gifted the office is the spiritual gift. So if I was no longer the pastor of Preston city Bible church, I would no longer have the spiritual gift that that's what the gift is. But I don't think that's what that means, but I do believe that there is a designation that Timothy received when prophetically Paul says, you're one of them and they, the, the, the elders designated him by laying hands. Today, how do we apply this? Well, we do ordinations. We seek elders with wisdom to say, yes or no, I see, I see this person's capabilities. And as far as we could tell, this is someone that God is going to use this way. And then they lay hands and, and so designate symbolically what they're saying God has already designated. But here's the thing. Paul is commanding him, this is something that's been given to you. Don't neglect it. I can tell you as a pastor it's easy to neglect it because the work comes with suffering. Why? It comes with hard work. It comes with the pain of hard work It comes with rejection, work hard, hard work, 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 and three people show up and you're not supposed to be bitter about that. They're not bitter about the three people. Okay. They're about all the other people that aren't there. But I'm not. I'm not supposed to be. There's neglect and there's rejection and there's there's all kinds of disappointments that happen. You work in somebody and work on them, work on them and then they, they fall apart. You built it up and it's like my kids play with toys. Play, my, my bigger kids will play with with a Lego they'll build this Lego they, they love. And then here comes here comes trouble. The two year old comes through the destroyer of worlds. And five hours of work can be reduced in five seconds of, of two-year-old stuff. And that's how you feel as a pastor sometimes. And it's, oh. and Roger Kipling had a great word about this. If you can see all your works destroyed and then you go, I'm paraphrasing, and build them up with worn out tools, build them back and don't give up. That, it's hard. So I, I, I'm giving you an explanation. Why would someone neglect the gift? Because there's hardship and pain that comes with it. And it's easier to do something else. (laughs) But he says, no, this is a stewardship that's been entrusted to you. There's an application here for you and me in principle. When God has given you something, even if it comes with hardship, he wants you to manage it. If he gives you a stewardship, he wants you to deal with it. I don't over rotate on that. I'm selling a house right now. And I think it's a stewardship of God's resources for me to sell it. All glory and praise be to God almighty. (laughs) If you've ever sold a house, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) With the laying on of hands of the eldership. Again, elders are designating an elder. Finally, take pains with these things. Well, almost finally take pains This is a rare word that it's just another way for Paul to say, be diligent, hold fast to yourself, take pains. Could mean cultivate, um, but it's well translated, take pains with these things. And then something I'll never, I never see. I see an imperative of amy, the main word in Greek for be, to be, be this. Amy. Now, They've really helped it out in the New American Standard and said, uh, be absorbed. That's good. Be absorbed. But the word is just be in them. Before he says become a good example, that's genomai, the other word for it to be. In this one, it's be in them. And I think it might be exist in them. So saturated, completely absorbed. That's the idea. Be in them. And then he tells you why, so that your progress will be evident to all. Remember that paradox in Matthew when Jesus says, do not practice your righteousness before men to receive praise for them because you've got your reward in full if you've been praised. But earlier he says, don't hide under a bushel basket. Don't hide your gift. Don't hide your light. Let your light shine before men so they can see God. Right, so do we practice our righteousness in front of men, or, or do we not practice our right? You, you do, but it's the reason why. And so here it is: you be diligent in all the work you're given in the word, because everyone will see the progress. Everyone will see the development. That's the idea. So, in a way, if now you could totally easily apply this to a pastor. But this will apply to you too, because the pastor is supposed to be an example for you. Believers, we're, we're called to live in a fishbowl. I don't like it any more than you do. I don't like the fishbowl. I like, I like tinted windows where you can't see what's going on inside. I want my own space and I want everybody to, to, if I want someone in there, I want to control that but this says you need to do what you do so that everyone can see your progress. You're an example for them. And that's a hard thing. Again, it's easy to like, get out of here. I'm gonna go take a walk. I don't want to be under, under observation, but we are, and we're supposed to be. And even if you find a way to hide yourself, the angels are watching. You're never going to be out from under observation. So understand that there's a consequence in your actions and your choices in the way you live that affects other people by God's design. That young pastor that's not accountable for how his actions affect other people doesn't understand what he's doing. He doesn't understand the, the whole example thing. Finally, verse 16. Pay close attention. We already had it. We had uh, pro echo, now we have ep echo. Echo to hold, to have, and intensified. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. That's not a message you'll hear from me very often. Pay attention to yourself. <laughs> Naval gazing right? Oh, I don't have any problem paying attention to myself. My problem is when other people come into the mix. I have to take my attention off myself and think of someone else. But he's not talking about narcissism, obviously. He's saying, look at what you're doing. Have some circumspection, in other words, step out of you and then watch you from an external perspective and see what you see. Oh, in a way, we're glad we can't see what others see, because we do have to get up in the morning and go to work. If you saw what the weaknesses the others see in you, you might not have get out of bed. It's hard. That's why God gave us wives, gentlemen, husbands, ladies. Part of it is you get somebody with an external perspective telling you what you don't want to hear about you, but that's what he's talking about. Pay attention to yourself. And and I I think this is a great argument for why uh, pastors are husbands of one wife. Elders are husbands of one wife in chapter three, right? Not single husbands of one wife is the design. Does that mean that a man can't be a bachelor and a pastor? I don't think it necessarily means that. But the idea of a celibate or a bachelor pastor as the 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 design, like the like the Roman system, unbiblical. Back me up on this, guys. She can help you find out things about you <laughs> that you might not have noticed. And so there's a great leverage here. Now I'm not going to preach that Timothy's married. He's probably not here. Timothy's a traveling man, and he like Paul. They don't. They can't be married. They, the, the the work doesn't allow a marriage Paul says elsewhere in second second Corinthians I have a right just like Peter to to lead a wife around I could drag her from church to church and she could be let out the window in a basket right beside me and she could be stoned to death right beside me in Lystra and then maybe the Lord raise her too and we go back to the work and and I could do that like Peter Peter's married to a woman as the apostle of Jesus Christ anyway pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching persevere in these things and these and them for as you do this, you will save sozo. You will save both yourself and those who hear you. The word save might one third of the time mean be uh, saved from hell. Like we say born again, might, a third of the time, it might mean that in Greek ensure salvation. That's a no, the word is "save." that you might save yourself and others. Those who hear you. Timothy's saved in that sense of born again. So what's he talking about? He's talking about the significance and value of life. The same thing in first Timothy chapter two, when he says, women will be saved through bearing children. It's not going to heaven. It's having the significance of your life that you want to have. You want to make your mark. You want to count, do something eternal, like have kids is what Paul's saying and train them up to fear the Lord and, and serve him forever. And so here, this is what's going to give you your value. Your, your work will matter. And the work of the others that follow your example will matter eternally. It'll have eternal consequence. You will be saved, is what he's saying, if you stay true to this. Now, these are the commands that go with the philosophy of ministry. Our Father, we thank you for the clarity of Scripture and the challenge we have here in knowing you this way. And we ask that you strengthen us to think this way about the work that you've given us. Father, we pray for those who may not know Christ as their Savior. We always want to make clear what, you, what you've done for us through him, that he died for our sins on the cross and rose from the dead. We pray that you'd make that message clear to all of our loved ones and family. We do pray for the list. In Jesus' name, amen.